Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner, and today we want to discuss part one of two of the neuromuscular blockers. Today, we want to talk about the general categories of depolarizing agents and non-depolarizing agents. And next time, we'll go into the details of different kinds of medications in terms of onset, duration, side effects, etc. First thing we want to talk about today is just a brief recap of the anatomy and physiology that we discussed in our last discussion. If you haven't listened to the episode, go back and listen to that if you need a refresher. But basically how this works is you have an action potential that comes down the alpha motor neuron. There in the neuron terminal, you will have depolarization, which allows calcium channels to open. This influx of calcium will bind these vesicles that are housing acetylcholine to the membrane and cause them to release acetylcholine into the neuromuscular junction. From there, you'll have some acetylcholine that goes to the presynaptic side on a nicotinic receptor, and that basically just tells the vesicles to get in line for the next release of acetylcholine. And then most of the acetylcholine is going to go across the junction and bind to a nicotinic receptor there on the motor end plate. These nicotinic receptors have five proteins. They have two alpha units, a beta, delta, and an epsilon unit as well. And when it binds to the alpha subunits, it will cause this nicotinic receptor to open, which allows sodium to rush in, causes depolarization to run down the muscle membrane to the T-tubule where it opens the DHP receptor. That causes the ryanidine receptor to open, causing calcium to be released, which causes your cross-bridge cycling. So that's the quick version of how your muscles are being activated. What we want to talk about today is how we are going to block that. And so it's important, like I said, you have nicotinic receptors on the presynaptic and postsynaptic side of the neuromuscular junction. You'll also, in some cases, have extra junctional receptors. We talked about this in last episode as well but you will see this in your severe septic patients, trauma patients, burns. You'll see this generally after the first 24 hours start to show up. Denervation injuries where you have a spinal cord injury. And basically, this is the same nicotinic receptor that's on the motor end plate, except it switches out your epsilon unit with the gamma subunit. And this is normal in development, but usually you stop seeing these by age two. But again, in these special conditions, you may see more of these extra junctional receptors. This is important to keep in mind later as we discuss the specific types of blockades. These extra junctional receptors will have some pretty important implications for the meds that we're giving. Awesome. So it's important to also know how does this signal get stopped on a normal basis? So normally that acetylcholine, when it binds to these nicotinic receptors, both on the presynaptic and postsynaptic side, what happens is you have acetylcholinesterase, which is an enzyme that's located pretty much solely in the synaptic cleft. And this acetylcholinesterase will break down the acetylcholine very quickly after it is released and allow that muscle to relax. This is important because if the acetylcholine remains bound to these nicotinic receptors, then the cell can't repolarize, recharge, and then have another depolarization sent down. So by the acetylcholinesterase quickly removing this acetylcholine, it allows the cell to reset itself and be allowed to depolarize again so that we can have repetitive movements over and over. And we'll get into that when we talk about depolarizing blockade and the implications of that 
when we talk about succinylcholine. But just remember that acetylcholinesterase is mainly found just in the synaptic cleft, and it breaks down the acetylcholine right away to acetyl-CoA and choline. And then it gets absorbed back into the presynaptic neuron and is then remade into acetylcholine, repackaged and ready to get sent out again. The two categories of neuromuscular blocking agents are depolarizing and non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockers. So depolarizing is basically just one medication, succinylcholine, and then your non-depolarizers are going to be broken down into short-acting, intermediate-acting, and long-acting. First, what we want to talk about is depolarizing, how that works, and how you get your muscle blockade using the depolarizing muscle relaxant. As the name suggests, this will depolarize the muscle membrane, and it does this by binding to both of the alpha subunits and causing the nicotinic receptor to open, causing sodium to rush in. The difference here is that where acetylcholine is immediately broken down, which allows the membrane to repolarize, this will stay on those alpha subunits and not allow another stimulus to depolarize that muscle membrane. This will also act on the presynaptic nicotinic receptor by agonizing that nicotinic receptor. So it will act just the same way that acetylcholine will, and it will keep releasing the acetylcholine into the neuromuscular junction. But again, since the postsynaptic side is depolarized and not available to have another impulse be sent down to the T-tubule, all of this acetylcholine that's being dumped into the neuromuscular junction will really have no effect. So something that I did not realize until I started studying this topic was how much of a role the presynaptic neuromuscular receptor has. So when either acetylcholine or the succinylcholine binds to this presynaptic receptor, it's going to just stimulate a mass packaging of these acetylcholine neurotransmitters in the terminal to then present itself in the front and be ready to just get sent out. And that way there's just more and more acetylcholine being sent out. Whereas when we talk about non-depolarizing our muscular blockers, you'll see the opposite effect here where it'll block this presynaptic receptor and prevent acetylcholine from coming out. So the, the big difference then between the breakdown of acetylcholine and succinylcholine is the cholinesterase in enzyme that breaks it down. So there's two different kinds here and there's a lot of different names. So don't get confused if you see multiple different types of names here. There really is only two different enzymes and we have about 10 different names to describe those two enzymes. Basically anything that is a acetylcholinesterase, true cholinesterase, type 1 cholinesterase, any any of the words like that are going to break down your normal acetylcholine. What breaks down succinylcholine is then the type 2 cholinesterase or the false cholinesterase, the plasma cholinesterase, or the pseudocholinesterase. So as the names kind of suggest there, anything that's kind of mimicking or false or a second type of this cholinesterase enzyme will be the one that breaks down succinylcholine. The big difference is this enzyme is produced in the liver. As the name plasma cholinesterase suggests, it's not just sitting here at the neuromuscular junction in that synapse. And we're not able to have that breakdown of succinylcholine as quick as if we have just the acetylcholine. Whereas the first type, the regular acetylcholinesterase enzyme is located just at that synapse. And so we're able to break down, break down that acetylcholine a lot quicker than the succinylcholine. And this is important because the succinylcholine, once it releases from the nicotinic receptor, it can actually still have an effect either on the same receptor or another receptor while it's there in the neuromuscular junction. 
how our body governs this is only a very limited amount of succinylcholine ever makes it to the neuromuscular junction. So I've seen even as little as two to 3% is all that reaches the neuromuscular junction. And this is so that you don't have succinylcholine causing this profound block here at the neuromuscular junction. So the acetylcholinesterase, again, will break it down very effectively. It just does this before it even reaches the nictinic receptor. And then as it diffuses away from the neuromuscular junction, then it can break it down in the plasma. Another thing that we want to talk about with the depolarizing neuromuscular blockers is fasciculations. This is something that you will see when you give succinylcholine. And basically what this is, is your muscles tensing up and in effect depolarizing when you give this medication. The reason we want to talk about this is because this can be a very serious complaint of a patient the day after surgery. They can be extremely sore. Usually this is in like the neck and shoulders region. To prevent this, you can give a non-depolarizing drug just at a subclinical dose. Usually you'll see like one-tenth of the normal dose, and this will hopefully avoid the fasciculations that you would usually see with succinylcholine. Remember with myasthenia gravis where you have the IgG antibodies on the postsynaptic nicotinic receptors. So you have fewer working nicotinic receptors. We said in that discussion that if that's the case, then you need an increased dose of depolarizing blocking agents. To me, this makes sense when I think about in order for depolarizing muscle blockers to work, they need a working nicotinic receptor to do their job. They need to have the depolarization go through the nicotinic receptor to have its effect. So if you have less receptors, you need to give more of the drug to have the effect. Whereas if you have less receptors and the non-depolarizing basically just block whatever receptors are left, you need less of that dose to cause the block. So think about it. If you give a subclinical dose of a non-depolarizing muscle relaxer, basically you are blocking some of the receptors already. So in a way, it's kind of similar to a myasthenia gravis picture where you have less available nicotinic receptors on that post-junctional side. So in this case, you need to give more of your depolarizing neuromuscular blocking agents. You'd have to give more sucks in that case than in a regular case where you did not give a subclinical dose of your non-depolarizer. Are you looking to join an organization where you can work at your full scope of practice? Join Sound Anesthesia's team and benefit from CRNA leadership with over 20 years of experience. Sound CRNAs enjoy career development, a clear leadership pathway, robust well-being resources, and the ability to perform at the top of their license. Sound is dedicated to providing our CRNAs with the tools needed to thrive in their practice. With multiple nationwide opportunities, we are confident you will find the right program for you. Learn more at careers.soundphysicians.com. Let's talk about some of the pathophys that's going to occur here when we have succinylcholine binding to the nicotinic receptors. So remember, in order to activate these postsynaptic nicotinic receptors, you need to have both alpha subunits be bound to by either acetylcholine or the succinylcholine. And when that occurs, when both of them are bound to, it'll open up. And what happens, as Tanner described earlier, you're going to have sodium rushing into the cell, and you're also going to have calcium rushing into the cell, whereas you're going to have potassium rushing out of the cell. So you should be thinking here that if we're going to be prolonging this channel being open with succinylcholine, what are the things that we're going to be at risk for? Well, if potassium is leaving the cell when this channel is open, 
we're going to be at risk for hyperkalemia. So what I found is that it can increase your serum potassium level by 0.5 to 1 milliequivalents per liter. Now, this will only occur acutely while the succinylcholine is having its duration of action, but still you have to keep in mind that if a patient is already hyperkalemic and you're going to be giving succinylcholine, probably not a wise idea for the fact that you're going to have further exacerbation of this hyperkalemia and you can start to have some cardiac symptoms from that. So keep that in mind. And the other thing we want to talk about is, as Tanner mentioned earlier, these extrajunctional receptors are going to be in higher number when you have patients with sepsis, trauma, history of burns, anytime they have atrophy. So if they don't have this innervation continually going to the muscles, so if it's somebody that sits around, is bedridden, you should expect that they're going to have high numbers of these extrajunctional receptors. And what that means is all this succinylcholine that's going to be present in this area and not broken down as quickly as the acetylcholine, it's going to be able to bind to all of these. In addition to that, the metabolite of succinylcholine or acetylcholine is choline itself, and choline can also bind to these extrajunctional receptors, and they can stay open longer than the regular receptors. So then your light bulb should be flashing in your head here that if these patients have extra amounts of these receptors and they stay open longer, and they are also opened by the metabolite of succinylcholine, we're really going to be at risk for hyperkalemic episodes here with these patients in higher number than you would if you have a patient that has just the normal nicotinic receptors all in line there at the motor end plate. The other thing you want to think about with these patients are conditions that could cause a decrease in pseudocholinesterase. Think about, like Cole mentioned, pseudocholinesterase is made in the liver. So if you have somebody with a liver disease, they would have less pseudocholinesterase. If they have myasthenia gravis, they may be on therapies that would reduce the pseudocholinesterase. Pregnancy can reduce your pseudocholinesterase levels as well. With these patients, you need to possibly think about reducing the dose that you would give to them for their therapeutic levels. The other thing that we want to discuss is atypical plasma cholinesterase. This is a genetic condition, and to my understanding, this is just a malformation of the pseudocholinesterase. And so these patients that have this genetic condition, again, can have a prolonged block because of the inability to break down the succinylcholine. So we can test this using Dibucane, which is a local anesthetic. This will basically give us a number that tells us how much effect as far as the length of action the succinylcholine will have in these patients. And how they get this number here for this Dibucane test is basically Dibucane is a amide local anesthetic that normally will inhibit plasma cholinesterase. So if you have these atypical plasma cholinesterases, it doesn't have any effect on them. So basically, when they give this dose of dibucane, you test for the amount of pseudocholinesterase that's going to be inhibited, and that's your number. So if you have 50% of the pseudocholinesterase being inhibited in whatever sample you collected, then your number is going to be 50, whereas if you only have 20% of the pseudocholinesterase being inhibited, your number is going to be 20. And that should tell you, since that's the number of normal pseudocholinesterase that is being inhibited, if it's only 20%, that means 80% is that atypical plasma cholinesterase that is present. It doesn't affect the number of these plasma cholinesterases. What it does affect is the quality of these because if they are atypical, they're not going to be able to break down sucks. You want a dibucane number of 80. That's normal, which means that at least 80% of the enzyme is the correct plasma cholinesterase enzyme. 
Right. And in these conditions where you just have a decreased amount of the pseudocolonesterase, they'll still have a normal dibucane test level because again, like you just said, Cole, we're testing the quality, not the quantity. So somebody who's in late pregnancy and has decreased numbers of the pseudocolonesterases, this dibucane test will still block 80% of the cholinesterases they have. And so their dibucane test will still be normal, even though they have a reduced total number of pseudocholinesterase. So next, we want to talk about phase one versus phase two blocks. So what phase one block is, if I give succinylcholine, what it's going to do is it'll bind to both the presynaptic and postsynaptic nicotinic receptors. Well, when it binds to the presynaptic receptor, as we talked about before, it produces a mobilization of the acetylcholine that's already kind of in the background in this terminal, and it moves it all and packages it all and stimulates that packaging to get it all present right at the edge of that terminal and ready to be released when the next stimulus comes down the, the axon. So it should make sense then that when succinylcholine is binding to this presynaptic nicotinic receptor, it's going to continue the release of significant amounts of acetylcholine. So with, with a phase one block here, you are not going to see any fade. So what is fade? Fade is basically when we're monitoring different twitches, both the quality and quantity of these twitches. Fade is basically where you have a full contraction and then partial contraction, a less contraction and a less contraction mainly due to a decrease in that acetylcholine being present. But in this phase one block, we're able to continually send out acetylcholine. And so we're not going to see that fade occur. However, higher doses of succinylcholine or subsequent doses of succinylcholine will cause what is known as a phase two block. It's suspected that at these higher doses or subsequent doses of succinylcholine, it actually inhibits this presynaptic nicotinic receptor, which would then inhibit the release of more acetylcholine. And so you will experience that fade because of the decrease in acetylcholine being able to get released from that terminal. So you're going to have that fade occur. Whereas in phase one, you don't see that fade. So the next thing we want to talk about are the non-depolarizing neuromuscular blocking drugs. These will compete with acetylcholine on the postsynaptic nicotinic receptors. And when they successfully do so, they will just sit on this nicotinic receptor and prevent that channel from opening, allowing sodium to come in, which will prevent the depolarization and muscle contraction. So these are highly ionized, low lipid soluble drugs, which if you remember from several discussions ago, this means that they will not cross lipid membranes. And so these will stay in the extracellular fluid when we uh, give these medications. With these patients, we need to think about what this means for extrajunctional receptors. We talked about this with the depolarizing neuromuscular blockers. Since these will prevent muscle contraction by blocking the receptors, if you have additional extrajunctional receptors, you're going to need to increase the dose because you have more receptors that you need to block. For these patients that have trauma, sepsis, burns, you'll want to give an increased dose of these non-depolarizing blockers. When we talk about the presynaptic side, so if you remember for the depolarizing muscle blockers, they, agon they were agonists for this presynaptic nicotinic receptor, which basically just caused the acetylcholine to continue being dumped into the neuromuscular junction. The non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockers are going to antagonize these presynaptic nicotinic receptors. 
So whatever is released, that acetylcholine is released from those vesicles, these non-depolarizings are going to bind to that receptor and basically not allow the vesicles to move down to the membrane and get ready to release more acetylcholine. So like we just talked about with the depolarizing muscle relaxers where you get phase one block, with non-depolarizing, you'll get a phase two block, which is where you'll see the fade when we talk about the train of four because you are getting less and less acetylcholine being released out into that synaptic cleft. Yeah. And the other thing that I want to mention with these medications is that in order to stimulate the postsynaptic nicotinic receptor, remember we need both alpha subunits to be bound to. And so with the depolarizing neuromuscular blocker, succinylcholine, we needed to bind both of those alpha subunits. However, with the non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockers, because the whole goal here is to block the signal from being sent through and depolarizing the muscle, all we need to do is block at least one of the alpha subunits. We can block both, but all we need to do is block one because then if the other alpha subunit is bound by acetylcholine or succinylcholine, it's not going to be able to depolarize the cell by opening that channel because at least one of those alpha subunits is blocked by our medication that we're giving. So it's an important distinction to note when you give a depolarizing neuromuscular blocker, so sucks, you have to activate both of the alpha subunits, whereas with these non-depolarizing medications, you only have to bind and block one of the alpha subunits. So when we're monitoring the effects of our medications that we're giving in these patients, oftentimes what we use is a train of four. I know I use that a lot in the ICU, and I'm sure a lot of you have if you've been in the ICU before. So what the train of four basically does is it'll send a stimulus, which will send a signal down through this nerve and do this whole process at the neuromuscular junction that we were talking about. And if our blockade medication is working appropriately, hopefully you're not going to see a twitch from the muscle that you're trying to isolate. So oftentimes what I used in the past in the ICU was when we paralyzed patients and prone them, and we would use the orbicularis oculi muscle dealing with the facial nerve, and we'd put the two patches on around the eye. Oftentimes you can also use the adductor pollicis, which is the thumb adduction muscle. And this is only innervated by the ulnar nerve. So the reason that we like to use this muscle is because it's simply from the ulnar nerve and we can isolate that. So if we're dealing with twitches in this thumb, you want to put the two patches that you're going to send the stimulus through with your train of four down on the ulnar side of the forearm. And you're going to isolate that ulnar nerve. And when you send a twitch or send a stimulus through, you should see a twitch in that thumb by being adducted towards the midline. And that's what we would basically use to determine the severity of the blockade that we're giving. There's different forms of this that you have to keep straight. We can do just simply a train of four. We can do a tetany. We can do a double burst. And it's important that you understand the difference of what you should see with all of these in a normal response where you don't have blockade. And then the difference between a phase one and a phase two, which we talked about earlier. And remember, phase one is where you're not going to see a fade. Phase two, you should see a fade. So train of four is going to be where you give a series of four twitches at two hertz. And with phase one, so with your succinylcholine block, you should see the same twitch on all four. Again, this is because you have acetylcholine that is still being pumped out into the neuromuscular junction, and this will give you an idea of the depolarizing block. When you have a phase two block, you should see a decrease in twitching from 
the first twitch to the fourth twitch. And this will give you your ratio. You should have a ratio of 90% back before you are ready to remove the tube. This will give you a good indication that they are reversed. With tetany, you just give a sustained stimulus that about 50 hertz, and this is usually done for about five seconds. This is a variation of the train of four, where with the phase one, you will still have just a continued twitch at the same level. With phase two, you should see a decline in the contraction by the end of this tetany test. Double burst is similar to train of four again, but this is just two bursts instead of four. And with all of these, it can be very subjective if you don't have a, a measuring device because one person's view of that being a less uh, of a twitch versus somebody else's can be very different. So again, some of these uh, aren't used quite as much as the train of four for that reason. And also you should just be aware that these can be subjective. The other thing we to talk about is post-tetonic potentiation. And this is where in phase two, once you see fade, so that is where all the acetylcholine is used up and you rest, that allows for more acetylcholine to be in the neuromuscular junction. So the next time that you give a stimulus, you're going to see an increased response. You won't see that, however, with phase one. And again, this is because you have continuous acetylcholine in that neuromuscular junction. When we give these neuromuscular blockers, you will see onset first in the eyes and in the digits. Next will be the trunk or abdomen. The last thing that will be relaxed is your diaphragm. And when we reverse these patients, it will happen in the reverse order. So the diaphragm will be the first thing to come back and then the trunk. And then lastly, the eyes and digits. And this is important to remember because like Cole mentioned, sometimes we test this on the orbicularis oculi, and that will be the best indication of when you are doing your induction. And when you are doing your emergence and you're reversing these patients, the adduction of the thumb with the adductor pollicis muscle, that's going to be the best indication that your diaphragm is recovered and you are ready to extubate the patient. So that basically sums up the pathway of a stimuli being sent down through the axon across to the muscle and causing it to contract, and then how we can basically block that pathway from occurring either through a depolarizing agent like 16-acholine or a non-depolarizing agent. Stay tuned to our next episode as we're going to go through the specifics of the different kinds of medications that we can give and how we'll see alterations and side effects from those different medications and when would be the best time versus not a good time to give those meds. 